Hi, I'm Mark Timmon, the Healthy Geezer. I have a master's degree in clinical nutrition, and I enjoy passing along the knowledge I've gained over the last half century, along with news of recent discoveries that can improve your health. I especially like to report on the clinical benefits that can be had from combinations of the right diet plus supplementation. If you want to know how to be as healthy as you can be, then this is the place for you. Welcome to the Healthy Geezer Podcast. This is Episode 1, The Essence of Humanity, Eating Without Fangs. To every good story, there is a beginning. And I agree with the history guy on YouTube that every good story should include pirates. Sadly, we don't have pirates, but we do have fanged therapsids. Both swashbuckling pirates and therapsids were equally adept at exploiting their environments, with the latter, the therapsids, eventually giving rise to the former, the pirates, while losing the fangs along the way. Let's step way back in time to see how we became who we are and see what that tells us about our diets today. Along the way, we'll learn why the Paleolithic diet is such a hot topic and whether it should be or not. The story begins long, long ago, before the age of mammals and even before the age of the dinosaurs. Way back then, around 250 to 256 million years ago, curious creatures that contained characteristics of both reptiles and mammals walked the earth. They ate insects, lots of termites it appears, and fruit. They were called the therapsids. Wait, actually, no one was around to call them that. I should say we call them therapsids today. They didn't know who they were. Therapsids wandered around the evolutionary path and eventually split into both reptiles and mammals. The mammalian branch proceeded along to create little tiny tree shrews that eventually led to various forms of proto-humans and then on to our Paleolithic ancestors living in the Old Stone Age. The word Paleolithic itself means Old Stone Age. The biochemistry of therapsids adapted to their food supply. Some of those adaptations are retained within us today. Indeed, we carry in our human genome thousands of genes from millions of years ago that are now totally shut down, inactive. Others have continued to function because they prove to be essential to the survival of every succeeding life form as time passed by. For example, by eating all those termites, therapsids became dependent on vitamin B12, synthesized by bacteria in the guts of the termites. We retain that same dependence on vitamin B12 today. Therapsids also ate a lot of fruit, becoming accustomed to their sweet tastes. To this day, we humans have a natural affinity for sweet-tasting foods from fruit to gummy bears, haha, <laughs> and on to baked Alaska. In 1985, two researchers, Stanley Boyd Eaton, M.D., and Melvin Connor, Ph.D., published a paper in Nature magazine called Paleolithic Nutrition. A few years later, they published a book for the lay public on the same topic. The seminal paper gave birth to an entirely new field of study. The book awakened the public at large to the Paleolithic diet. One of their more astute graduate students, Lauren Cordain, became a leading researcher in the field in his own right and has published numerous books and articles. But you want to know how this all might apply to you. What the research tells us is that you may think you are whatever age you are, whether it be 20, 30, 40, or more, but instead, on the inside, you are, in a way, several million years old, with the newest significant parts of your genome no younger than 40,000 years old. So you see, in a way, 
We are all geezers, biochemically speaking. The study of Paleolithic nutrition, which requires a whole lot of digging around in the dirt to dig up the dirt on our ancestors, has shown us that, before the advent of agriculture, they consumed a little more than five pounds of food per day on average, consisting of about two pounds of wild meats, fish, and yes, insects, and 3.2 pounds of vegetable matter. That's a lot of food. Leaves, flowers, roots, berries, nuts were all gathered and consumed. The men of the clan would shoulder their heavy stone-tipped spears and go out on hunting excursions. They trapped fish in the streams and caught them along the shore if they lived by the sea. They would pound, roast, dry, and otherwise process all of these foods for human consumption. So, if they ate five pounds of food that gave them 3,000 or more calories per day, by the way, how come they didn't turn into land whales? The answer is pretty simple. They worked hard and burned lots of calories. They didn't have TV or Netflix, cars, or even bicycles. They had feet and walked everywhere in a free-of-wheels world where the terrain was seldom flat. Try that, ladies, while carrying a child in a sling across your front and carrying leather pouches that become heavier and heavier with every plant you pluck and shove inside. Hunting was an arduous experience, too. A stone-tipped spear weighs much more than an Olympic javelin. And once the hunters trekked far and wide to find and trap game, they had to kill it, butcher it, eat the organs, and carry or drag the rest back to the camp. My apologies to any vegans who might be listening. I'm just relating history here, not dietary recommendations. The energy output to sustain a hunter-gatherer in Paleolithic times was huge. Food intake was just as huge to provide enough calories, but the foods themselves were far less fattening. There were no grains, no breads, cakes, pies, cookies. There was no alcohol unless a piece of fruit began to ferment before it was eaten. There was no sugar unless some courageous fool ripped part of a honeycomb out of a wild beehive and ran like hell. Meats were incredibly lean with low, low-fat content, thus the main sources of our modern excess, unhealthy, empty calories were absent in ancient diets. Instead, every calorie in the diets to which human biochemistry adapted was stuffed with nutrients. So the primary difference between those ancient foods and the ones we consume today is in their nutrient density. Nutrient density is defined as the amount of nutrients per kilocalorie of food energy. We commonly refer to kilocalories simply as calories, so I will continue that convention here. The main point is that calories are delivered from the macronutrients, fat, protein, and carbohydrate. All three of these macronutrients are burned up for life-sustaining energy. But as you break down the fat, protein, and carbohydrate to get at the energy, all sorts of micronutrients are liberated. These include the familiar vitamins and minerals, but now we know there are many more types of micronutrients. They include amino acids, free fatty acids, plant saponins, alkaloids, polyphenols, and other bioactive food substances from the plants. By bioactive, I simply mean that these substances can affect, influence, moderate, or in some way control specific events in human biochemistry. Some can even adjust the functions of our genes. For example, steroidal saponins from fenugreek seeds have been shown to elevate testosterone levels in elderly males and to sustain testosterone levels in younger adult males. 
The omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, effectively prevent the formation of random blood clots that can cause strokes, heart attacks, and phlebitis. Having these fatty acids in your diet can prevent those deadly events. They used to be abundantly supplied in wild meats in our evolutionary diets and now are nearly absent from farm-raised animals. Steroidal saponins, EPA, and DHA, then, are examples of bioactive food substances. The amount and variety of micronutrients from each calorie, including bioactive food substances, determines the nutrient density of a food. The more micronutrients you have per calorie, the greater the nutrient density. Paleolithic foods usually had far greater nutrient density than foods today. Why? Because no one was farming. The soil was virgin, packed with minerals and nitrogen. It had not yet been depleted by repetitive planting and harvesting of crops. Wild animals ate the wild nutrient-dense plants, loading themselves with lots of micronutrients. Our Paleolithic ancestors, and those who preceded them, ate both the animals and the plants. In the process, we trained our human biochemistry to expect high levels of micronutrients with each calorie we ate. That places us at a disadvantage today because the foods we eat in the 21st century are not as nutrient-dense as foods used to be. And whereas wild meats are at most about 5% fat and loaded with the omega-3 fatty acids EPA and DHA, a lean cut of beef today will instead be about 25% fat. Worse, most of the fat in that piece of beef is composed of omega-6 lipids and almost no EPA and DHA. Omega-6 fatty acids in meat include linoleic acid and arachidonic acid, although I will delve deeply into their black-hatted behavior in upcoming podcasts. Let me just mention here that they are inflammatory lipids linked to higher risks of arthritis, cancer, heart disease, and other disorders we hear about regularly in the news. Much time has passed since Eaton and Connor introduced us all to the concept of the Paleolithic diet. A body of evidence largely favorable to it continues to grow. This leads many nutritionists to make a compelling case for adopting a diet in our modern times that approximates the diet of Paleolithic hunters and gatherers as closely as possible. Solid archaeological evidence shows our Paleolithic ancestors living a life free of osteoporosis and rheumatoid arthritis. They did have some osteoarthritis from wear and tear on joints. Skeletal indentations where muscles attached verify that Paleolithic people were, in general, heavily muscled, strong, and fit. This is to be expected given their vigorous lifestyle. Athletes train today by interspersing days of exhaustive exercise with periods of rest during which their muscles rebuild to meet the new levels of stress expected of them. It is presumed Paleolithic peoples blasted themselves with exercise while hunting and gathering, but were able to bring home enough food to last two or three days. It was an effective, old-style, athletic training regimen. Indeed, it is estimated that the average level of fitness of our Paleolithic ancestors was that of an Olympic decathlon athlete today. There wasn't a couch potato among them. Although life expectancy was short due to accidents and exposure to harsh weather conditions, those who managed to survive into old age apparently did so in good health. At least, that is what the skeletal evidence suggests. The nutrient density of their food supply had to contribute to longevity as long as they were lucky enough to not walk off a cliff in the fog. Given that human biochemistry adapted to nutrient-dense foods, 
and today we must survive on less dense foods, and given that the five pounds of food our ancestors ate sustained them on 3,000 and more calories per day, and most of us today eat fewer than 2,000 calories, then that leaves us wondering whether or not we are getting optimal levels of micronutrients, levels that will keep our immunity strong, our muscles strong, and our brains functioning. For example, we know the reduction of dietary DHA, tocosahexaenoic acid, that occurred with the advent of agriculture, forced a reduction in the size of the human brain. DHA is a fatty acid essential to brain growth and development. The replacement of wild meats with grain-based foods and domesticated farmed meat caused DHA intake to plummet. Along with it went the size of the human brain. Evolution took a step backward from which we have not yet recovered. The human brain today is 10% smaller than it was in the Cro-Magnon people, or Cro-Magnon if you prefer, of the Upper Paleolithic period. The Upper Paleolithic stretched from about 40,000 years ago to the advent of agriculture. The Cro-Magnons were modern humans. To get back on point, DHA is just one nutrient that we know has been reduced below ideal levels over time. How about others? Perhaps the extreme nutrient density of ancient diets provided more micronutrients than we needed for optimal health. That is possible. Potassium and boron are two elements that were so oversupplied by the ancient virgin plants that we never developed a mechanism to store and conserve them against possible days of scarcity. Human chemistry grew to expect that there would be an ample supply of the two nutrients every day. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, if you eat plenty of fresh vegetables, you will be able to get enough potassium. For boron, you're out of luck. Unlike potassium, boron has become seriously depleted in most agricultural soils, dropping expected daily intake to 1 to 1.5 milligrams per day, if you eat whole fresh foods. Current nutritional science implies that we need at least 3 milligrams per day. One role of boron is to assure the maintenance of strong bones. Remember our Paleolithic ancestors? They certainly had strong bones. Fast forward to today. What is a major fear of aging adults? Osteoporosis. A primary contributing factor is insufficient dietary boron. So we've looked at just three nutrients, DHA, potassium, and boron, and find that two of them, generally speaking, are not supplied at levels needed to support optimal health in the present day. Our sample of three nutrients is admittedly severely limited, but the nutrients considered are important ones and suggest three things. One, perhaps optimal intake for some micronutrients is closer to the high Paleolithic level than anticipated. Two, due to the reduced calorie intake and reduced nutrient density of foods today, great care must be taken to guarantee optimal nutrition if one relies only on foods to meet nutritional needs. And three, Perhaps dietary supplementation is necessary nowadays to fulfill nutrient requirements for optimal health. Agriculture dramatically altered the human diet. Its shock to human biochemistry, begun somewhere between 20 and 10,000 years ago, is still too recent to have been fully accommodated. The consumption of grain and dairy foods that we accept as normal is actually foreign to the ancient biochemistry we carry inside us. Grain was never a part of our evolutionary diet and carries toxins we never fully adapted to. 
Dairy foods disappeared from the human diet at the moment ancestral mothers weaned their babies. The proteins in mother's milk stimulate rapid tissue growth. This is as it should be because a tiny baby must quickly establish itself in the world if it hopes to survive. There is evidence today, however, that assigns danger to continued consumption of dairy proteins into adulthood. Casein proteins from milk stimulate tissue growth. That is why caseinate proteins are preferred sources for bodybuilders. They may also be useful in the short term to improve healing following surgery. But studies show that too much casein can stimulate all stages of tumor development. In rats, at least, a model of humans often used in cancer research, exceeding 5% of the animal's calorie intake as milk proteins increases the risk of cancer. At 20%, cancer development is almost guaranteed. As the dawning of the Neolithic age dragged agriculture in with it, human culture and societal structures changed. Grain entered the diet. Dairy foods persisted beyond their welcome. Agriculture not only brought a reduction in nutrient density, but altered the acid-base balance of our bodies, for the metabolism of grains and dairy foods acidify human tissues. Again, I am speaking in general terms. Many people who consume significant quantities of plant foods are able to sustain a net alkaline biochemistry. Others who succumb to the hurried nature of their lives, eating readily available foods and pseudo-foods, often end up consuming enough meat, dairy, and grain to create a persistent net acidic biochemistry. This is undesirable. Acidity contributes to inflammation that stands at the foundation of many debilitating diseases. We will get into this topic in greater detail in later podcasts. The grain-free, dairy-free diets of the ancient era, reliant on over 170 different plant foods, washed down with mineral-laden water from springs and streams, created a net alkaline diet that significantly reduced the risks of cancer and cardiovascular disease. We don't have enough soft tissue remaining from Paleolithic times to be certain, but comparisons with the health records of indigenous tribes following similar Paleolithic dietary practices indicates that the Paleolithic hunter-gatherer diet must have been nearly completely devoid of the modern diseases of affluence that include cancer, heart disease, osteoporosis, rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune diseases, diabetes, irritable bowel syndromes, and others. A paleo diet, as it is flippantly called today, can be approximated by limiting oneself to the two food groups enjoyed by our Paleolithic ancestors. Animal and insect protein is one group, and plant foods in the form of fruits and vegetables is the second. In sheer bulk, one would want to consume three parts vegetable matter to two parts animal protein. There are now numerous books, videos, and blogs that put the fine points on how to prepare and flavor such foods, but you can be certain that nothing you might buy in a store that comes in a box, a can, or a bag that is made by Frito-Lay, Oscar Mayer, Sara Lee, Entenmann's, or any of the other major food processors would be suitable for inclusion in the Paleolithic diet. Attempting to follow a Paleolithic diet means you shop at your local farmer's market and around the periphery of the supermarket where you find fresh vegetables and meats. But is this the best practice? Case studies and mounting epidemiological evidence indicates that the Paleolithic diet, the Mediterranean diet, and smartly constructed vegan diets are the most healthful. That is good news. 
but I want to offer a caution. We still don't know enough. The meats and vegetables we eat today are not the same as our Paleolithic ancestors consumed, yet our biochemistry still looks for what ancient foods delivered. The identification and isolation of micronutrients, starting with vitamins and minerals, is only a little more than a hundred years old, yet the study areas of biochemistry, nutrition, and plant science continue to expand. We are still discovering new substances in foods and herbs that have impact on human biochemistry, both positive impact and negative impact. We also continue to discover harmful substances in foods we previously believed to be healthful. The fields of study are immense and may never be vanquished. In other words, scientific knowledge is still too young to tell us definitively what we can and should eat to achieve optimal health. After all, every food consumed by man from the earliest times until today has been chosen by trial and error. If it didn't kill us or make us sick, we believe we could eat it. If it tastes good today, we eat it. But now we possess better analytical techniques and methodologies that allow us to dig deeply into the chemical nature of foods and understand how their components react with and influence our biochemistry. We are beginning to decipher what is good for us and what is bad for us. What about peanuts? Can you eat them and enjoy them, or will they kill you? We can also expect surprises. What science tells us is good this year may be bad next. Safflower oil comes to mind. First we were told it was good for your heart because it lowered cholesterol. The next year we learned, oops, Safflower's high omega-6 fatty acid content was inflammatory, caused oxidative damage, and raised the risk of both cardiovascular disease and cancer. Most confounding of all is human individuality. A wonderful food for one person might put another in the grave. Remember peanuts? The confluence of a person's genes, biochemistry, and microbial load, their microbiome, now look to be the factors determining what a person should eat. In other words, an ideal diet for you may not be an ideal diet for your spouse, your neighbor, or even your child. Each of us is certainly different, other than identical twins, so it is beginning to look like there's no universally perfect human diet. But don't despair. The last 100 years of research has not been for naught. We do know with some precision what constitutes a healthful diet for most of us, in general, kind of, the grand investigation into human health taking place around the world, in every civilized country, at universities, in research labs and field studies, fuels our adventure of discovery. Let's see what mysteries can be solved in future podcasts. Please stay tuned. Thanks for listening. You can find episodes of the Healthy Geezer podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you download your podcasts. Episodes, as well as written transcripts, are also available at our website, www.marktimmon.com. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend to tune in to the Healthy Geezer podcast, and be sure to subscribe by hitting the subscribe button on your podcast host's platform. If you have questions, I will do my best to answer them. Just send an email to me at mark at marktimmon.com. That's Mark with a K and Timmon with one M, all as one word. M-A-R-K-T-I-M-O-N dot com. This episode was brought to you by www.ellen.online. 
Ellen, spelled simply as E-L-I-N, at ellen.online, you find enlightened supplements illuminating the world. 